From the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, retinal vascular caliber and diabetic retinopathy. Even in patients with very good sugar control, they still went on to develop retinopathy and other complications. And conversely, even in people with poor control, some people were, did not develop these complications. So obviously, other factors are important in determining whether a person with type 1 diabetes end up with uh, different types of complications. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Wang declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. Did you know that you can get every episode of As Seen From Here as soon as it comes out and without ever having to visit a website? It's called subscribing, and it's free. Each week, subscribers get As Seen From Here automatically loaded onto their iPods, MP3 players, and computers by using a program called a podcatcher. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the How Do I Listen button. Subscribing only takes a minute. Free podcatchers are available for Windows, Macintosh, and Linux computers. I put links to download an excellent podcatcher on the How Do I Listen page of asseenfromhere.com. Then, within hours of my podcasting an episode, you'll have it too. Glycemic control is an important risk factor for the development of diabetic retinopathy. But is it really the case that patients with good glycemic control never develop diabetic retinopathy and patients with poor control always develop it? Of course it is not. Tian Wang, professor of ophthalmology at the University of Melbourne, has studied retinal vascular caliber and its relation to diabetic retinopathy. I spoke with Dr. Wang in his office in Melbourne. Let's spend a little time talking about the epidemiology of diabetic retinopathy and type 1 diabetics. How common is it overall? Well, in young type 1 diabetics, the uh, prevalence and incidence of retinopathy, uh, it's uh, probably in the range of about 10%. uh, And uh, uh, various studies have shown different rates, partly because uh, um, there have have been no good recent data um, on the prevalence or incidence of uh, retinopathy in young type 1 patients. What is the DCCT and what are its findings? Okay, the DCCT was a landmark clinical trial that was conducted across multiple centers uh, in the U.S. uh, and it was done in the early to mid-1990s when there was uncertainty regarding whether lowering blood sugar levels would reduce or prevent the incidence or progression of diabetic retinopathy as well as other microvascular complications such as kidney problems in type 1 diabetes. So the aim of DCCT was to determine if there was a tight glucose control lowering the sugar levels to a level that was considered to be in a, uh, in a good glycemic range, whether or not people with type 1 diabetes would have a lower risk of developing retinopathy and other microvascular complications. The DCCT found that, in fact, if you did that, 
having a tight glucose control, you actually prevent not only the development of new complications, but you also slow the progression of existing complications, including both retinopathy as well as nephropathy or kidney disease in uh, this uh, in this clinical trial. So it was really a landmark study in, in the sense that it provided a basis for physicians and ophthalmologists and other people and including patients around the world to understand and know the importance of having good sugar control if you have type 1 diabetes. Now, having said that, does glycemic control provide the whole picture? Well, no, and that was the problem with uh, current management of type 1 diabetes. If glucose control was the only factor that was important, then we would you know, just focus our energy on making sure that sugar control was uh, well uh, was taken care of, in which case then you would, uh, uh, in theory, expect no uh, complications to occur. But in the DCCT, as well as other studies, what they found was that even in patients with very good sugar control, they still went on to develop retinopathy and other complications. And conversely, even in people with poor control, some people were, did not develop these complications. So obviously, from the DCCT and other studies, we know that other factors are important in determining whether a person with type 1 diabetes end up with uh, different types of complications. Prior to your study, what did we know about retinal vascular caliber and its relation to diabetic retinopathy? There has been some studies done in the early 70s in which they have observed that people with diabetic retinopathy tended to have wider retinal vascular caliber. Now, these studies were used very imprecise techniques, really just by observing uh, and comparing retinal uh, vessel diameter with the naked eye seen through the ophthalmoscope. But these studies provided really a very important basis for looking at these associations in the current study. Now, from the 1970s to the uh, prior to the current study, there have been very few studies that have looked at this relationship. In the late 1990s, early 2000s, methods were available that could that allow what we call a computer-assisted measurement of retinal vascular caliber from retinal photographs, and we have applied this technique to studies in people in the general population with and without diabetes, in people with and without hypertension. And we have found that retinal vascular caliber provided useful information in predicting people with different types of cardiovascular diseases. In one of the studies in older adult type 2 people with diabetes, we found that wider retinal vascular caliber was associated with progression of retinopathy. So the aim of our current study, in fact, the purpose of the study was to determine in younger children with type 1 diabetes whether retinal vascular caliber would provide information that will allow us to predict the onset of new retinopathy. What is the Wisconsin epidemiological study of diabetic retinopathy? That is another landmark epidemiological study that was done in the United States in Wisconsin uh, that started in the early 1980s. And that study showed that various different risk factors predicted the 
onset as well as progression of retinopathy. With regards to the current project, in the Wisconsin Epidemiological Study of Diabetic Retinopathy, in people that were older adult patients with type 1 and type 2 diabetes, larger vascular caliber was associated with progression of retinopathy from mild to more severe retinopathy levels. But they did not find in that study whether retinal vascular caliber was associated with the onset or the new development of retinopathy. Tian, can I get you to describe the design of your study? What we did was uh, really a case control study, which was based in the hospital, but it was based on looking at prospective outcomes. In other words, incidents of new cases of retinopathy. So the cases were children or adolescents that were aged 12 to 20 years who had type 1 diabetes and who were follow-up in our clinics. And cases were defined as people or children who develop incident diabetic retinopathy after at least one year of follow-up over about two clinic visits itself. So these were the cases that we uh, were uh, interested in. The control population were patients who were aged and sex matched to the cases that did not develop retinopathy after at least two years of follow-up or more. And what we did was that we looked at the baseline retinal photographs of both cases and controls. We digitized the photographs and we measured retinal vascular calibers from both cases and controls. And we found that cases with who developed incident retinopathy had larger baseline retinal vascular calibers than the similarly aged and sex match controls. Of which vessels did you measure vascular caliber? We measured a combination. We actually did a measurement of all the vessels that radiated from the optic disc approximately one uh, to one and a half disc diameters away from the optic disc. And we summarize these vessel measurements into uh, a single uh, average arterial as well as venular diameter for a, a particular photographs. So the vessels that we measured were essentially a summary of all the vessels that were seen radiating from the optic disc. Your main outcome measures were a function of retinopathy scores, retinopathy grades. Can I have you explain your grading system? Yes. Our grading system was uh, actually very uh, straightforward. It was based on the uh, standard uh, early treatment for diabetic retinopathy study scale, which is what people call the ETDRS study scale. And that graded retinopathy as different levels itself uh, in increasing severity. So, for example, the lowest level would be where there is no retinopathy. The second stage or level 21 would be where at least there was one microaneurysm or hemorrhage. And level 31, the next stage would be where there's microaneurysm plus more than one hemorrhage, heart exudates, venous beating, or venous loops, and so on and so, so forth. We defined in this study cases were considered 
uh, you know, to have insulin retinopathy if they had level 10, which is with no retinopathy at baseline, and they develop at least level 21 or greater after one year of follow-up. And these were cases that were defined as incident retinopathy. What was the duration of your follow-up? We had varying follow-ups uh, uh, throughout the uh, whole study, and cases and controls uh, had uh, different times of follow-up. On, on average, cases were only eligible to inclu- be included if they had at least one year of follow-up, and controls if at least they had two years of follow-up. Now, you touched on your findings. Can I have you go over once more what your findings were? Right. Our findings were that cases or patients that develop incident retinopathy had larger arterial and venular calibers at baseline from the baseline photographs as compared to the controls who did not develop retinopathy. This larger caliber predicting insulin retinopathy was remained significant, particularly for the arterial diameters, even after controlling for various risk factors such as age, sex, blood pressure, glycosylated hemoglobin, pubertal stage, duration of diabetes, and body mass index, such that we found that with every standard deviation decrease or increase in arterial caliber, there was approximately a 40 to 50% increase in the risk of retinopathy. What do you think the pathophysiology is that accounts for this association? This is uh, rather uh, difficult to uh, determine from this study as our study was not uh, designed to address the underlying pathophysiology. There have been, however, many studies that have shown that wider vascular caliber are associated with different pathophysiological processes. For example, we know that people with wider or larger vascular calibers generally have poorer long-term glycemic control, have higher levels of inflammatory markers, and are possibly associated with endothelial dysfunction. There's also been some hypothesis that wider vascular calibers may reflect hyperperfusion or increase in the flow of, uh, uh, in the retina blood flow in the retinas of those uh, patients that have wider retinal vascular calibers. So just to restate what you've said, the initial response to hypoxia is vasodilation and that retinopathy then follows. But if this is the case, then do we see in patients with larger uh, vascular caliber, poorer retinal blood flow? Well, we didn't measure retinal blood flow here, but I think our our findings are consistent with the fact that uh, either poor retinal blood flow with hypoxia leading to vascular dilation is the underlying mechanism causing increased retinopathy. Or there is a phase in retinopathy development or in the early phase that there's an increase in blood flow, in fact, in which could be related to the fact that the hypoxic tissues 
demands an increased blood flow to those uh, underperfused areas. And that might also uh, be captured by the fact that the, these vessels have larger uh, vascular calibers. Now, in addition to the association that you just mentioned, and the fact that uh, vascular caliber seems to correlate with glycemic control, I, I imagine that it is difficult to assess which of these correlations is causative. Yes, uh, that, that's correct. Uh, I think that it can't be determined from this study. What this study does show is that if you're able to measure retinal vascular caliber, then you have a good surrogate marker for all these processes that we mentioned, and that that vascular caliber might then be able to tell you as a surrogate marker for you know all the different processes going on in the retina for which eyes might or might not develop retinopathy. What happens to vascular caliber as retinopathy progresses? Well, I think that there's uh, again been some controversy with regards to the different stages of um, changes with retinal vascular caliber with retinopathy severity. But the general consensus seems to be that there seems to be an increase in dilatation or increase in caliber as a result, as I said, of an increased demand for um, blood flow in the, in the eye because of hypoxia occurring in different parts of the retina. And then subsequently, with, over, uh, with increasing severity of retinopathy or with disease progression, there is a narrowing of the retinal vascular caliber because um, the hypoxic tissues do not seem to uh, uh, require so much oxygen partly because they have already been ischemic for a long time. Now, we've been talking about retinal vascular caliber in young patients with type 1 diabetes. Uh, let's talk now about the paper about uh, retinal vascular caliber in uh, patients with type 2 diabetes. Can I get you to describe the design of the second study? Okay. The second study was a slightly different design to the first study in type 1 diabetes. The second study was based on the Wisconsin Epidemiological Study for Diabetic Retinopathy, which I mentioned is a landmark study for people with diabetes um, in, conducted in Wisconsin in the early 1980s and has really provided very significant findings on a range of uh, issues relating to diabetic retinopathy and other complications. In, the, in this current analysis, what we did was that out of the 1,300 patients or so diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, at the baseline examination of this Wisconsin study in 1980 to 1982, we measured retinal vascular caliber on the, the entire study population. And what we did was that we evaluated what were determinants of retinal vascular caliber in these patients with type 2 diabetes. So it was really a cross-sectional population-based study in this current analysis. Tian, what were your findings from the second study? We found that retinal vascular caliber in people with type 2 diabetes were related to a variety of systemic and ocular findings. For example, we found that older people had narrower arterial calibers than people that were younger. 
we also found that higher blood pressure was associated with a narrowing of the arterial caliber. In contrast, we found different associations with smoking status. For example, we found that people who smoked had wider vascular calibers than people who did not smoke. We also found, which was very similar to the paper on type 1 diabetes, that increasing severity of retinopathy was associated with wider vascular calibers. How do you think these findings relate to those of the paper dealing with type 1 diabetes in young patients? I think they are complementary, but they also contrast the factors that we know and do not know regarding this area of research. They are complementary in the sense that both papers suggest that wider vascular calibers are associated with retinopathy. In the first paper in type 1 diabetes, it predicts the development of new retinopathy. In the second paper, in the current paper in the Wisconsin study in type 2 diabetes, it seems to be related cross-sectionally with more severe retinopathy. So I think this aspect is very consistent across two different populations in two different types of diabetes, type 1 and type 2. At the same time, this current paper provides a greater insight into why people with type 1 and type 2 diabetes have different vascular risk factors. We found associations here with blood pressure, with smoking status, and with different things like, for example, body mass index and pulse rate. We were not able to evaluate some of these in the children with type 1 diabetes for obvious reasons that they do not have high levels of blood pressure, and obviously most children do not smoke in, peop- uh, uh, in that population. So in a sense, again, very complementary, but also uh, findings that add to each other's, uh, to, um, to add to the different studies. Tian, have the findings of these studies played any role in the way that you practice? I think it is premature for these findings to be used in clinical setting. The reason being that the measurement of retinal vascular caliber involves programs that are uh, that are highly specialized currently, and that it is not easy to detect changes in vascular calibers uh, using you know the naked eye through clinical ophthalmoscopy. However, we believe that these findings provide very important insights into understanding that there are subtle changes in the retinal vessels in people even without retinopathy, that, uh, um, even without the clinical development of retinopathy. And that in the future, we think that measurement of vascular calibers would be possible in clinical settings. Tian, thank you very much. Okay, thanks very much. Tian Wang is Professor of Ophthalmology at the University of Melbourne, Centre for Eye Research Australia in East Melbourne, Australia. His papers, Retinal Vascular Caliber and Risk of Retinopathy in Young Patients with Type 1 Diabetes and Retinal Vascular Caliber in Persons with Type 2 Diabetes, the Wisconsin Epidemiological Study of Diabetic Retinopathy 20, Both appear in the September 2006 issue of Ophthalmology.
ask questions of Dr. Wang or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the new media project of the NYU School of Medicine and is edited by Joe Fry. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young. Josh Young.